So let's open our Bibles this morning where Paul was reading for us a little earlier to 2 Corinthians as we make our way through the scriptures, chapter by chapter. We're in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, verses 14 through 18. Do not be unequally yoked together with an unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Biela? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them, I will walk amongst them, I will be their God, they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them, be separate, says the Lord, do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Um, remember uh, the setting here. Paul is writing to a very carnal and pagan church in a city of Corinth. Um, we've showed little videos up there, um, the reason for its wealth. It was the wealthiest city in Paul's day and um, because it had two ports. Remember the canal that they dug and they had two ports on each side? Population, 700,000 people, two-thirds of which were slaves. Uh, It had the temple of Aphrodite's on top of the mountain overlooking um, the city of Corinth. And um, so they had 1,000 temple prostitutes. So it was very, a very immoral um, city. And it actually had an effect on the church in Corinth. Um, the church in Corinth failed to address the sexual misconduct that we'll look at a little bit this morning that had crept into the church. Some guy was sleeping with another man's wife and everybody knew about it and nobody was doing anything about it. So Paul had to write this letter. Matter of fact, most of 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to be referring back to this incident that happened in the church of Corinth. And this is where we get the scripture where it says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And um, the idea there, it was uh, permeating the whole fellowship. And um, Paul had to address it. He says, look, I'm not even an heir. But in the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, deliver such a one under to Satan. In other words, kick him out of the church uh, so that his soul will be saved. That was the most loving thing that could be done because this guy thought he was actually going to heaven. But if you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, anybody that's a fornicator or an adulterer, and that was the case in the church in Corinth, will not go to heaven, period. And so the good news is, Paul has to keep referring to this as we go through 2 Corinthians and how it made, made him sad, but the guy repented. So now he has to write back to the church and he said, look, my stern letter accomplished what I wanted it to accomplish. 
but I found no joy in writing it, but it had to be done. And uh, now what I want you to do is make sure that you don't treat them like a second <laughs> class Christian. Uh, remember you what you've been forgiven of. Well, he repented, and he says, now I want you to love on him even that much more because um, he came to deal with the, the sin that was in his life. So here Paul is writing to explain this. This morning, um, we will seek to find a balance, is the best way I can think of putting it, between living in the world but not being part of it. Let's go back to where this incident took place in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and um, pick it up in verse 9. He's referring to this letter. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world. So now he's making a distinction between people who are not in the church and people who are outside of the church. Yet I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would have to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is a fornicator or is covetousness or idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. That'll happen at the great white throne judgment where it says they will be judged, each one, according to their deeds. And Therefore, put away from yourself that wicked person. And he's referring to the, this person in the first eight verses. We'll be coming back um, to this chapter a little bit later. But what basically Paul is saying, he's appealing to the Christians in Corinth for separation. The society had affected the church instead of the church affecting the society. And so he's appealing with them to have this separation uh, and for cleansing. He is not to be in agreement with idolatry. He is to be separated from worldliness and from the spirit of worldliness, which can creep in even into the church and into the lives of the believers. The believers should not even touch the unclean thing. Now we're actually going to have an Old Testament picture a little bit later in a study this morning about literally touching the unclean thing. Uh, Paul makes an appeal to the Corinthian believers to make a clean break with idolatry. They are to make a break from the sins of the flesh. They are to be separated from the worldliness that's in the world. Um, there are many people today considered, they consider themselves to be separated uh, believers who are actually as worldly as you can imagine. So that would be one example of um, our verse back here, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
Now, <laughs> we have John Deere tractors today. Uh, before that, um, I, I can't take for granted, especially if you're younger, that you know what a yoke is. And I'm not yoking when I say that. <laughs> but it's, you know, I'll, I'm going to, you don't have to turn, but I'll turn and um, read De- Deuteronomy. This is actually part of the law. Deuteronomy 22. Um, reading verse 10 says you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together and what they would do is they would put this wooden yoke around them and here in the law it's saying you can't put an ox and a donkey together as part of the law and you say what's up with that well the ox was considered clean but the donkey was considered unclean. And that was, they were unequally yoked, one being clean and one being unclean. And so this is what I think Paul is using. He's thinking back to Deuteronomy, to this verse. And um, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And this can arrange, I'm gonna go through three or four different applications Um, Let me just give you one example here. An example of such a relationship is the identification, let's say, with an institution. If a man is a professor in a seminary and he's conservative and holds the great truths of the Bible, but the seminary has gone liberal, such a man should get out of that seminary because he is drawing a salary And there he's identified with their work and with their organization. He's associated uh, with it in a very tangible, real way. He is unequally yoked with unbelievers. Let's say you want to start up a business. And your business partner, you're saved, and your business partner isn't. Um, You shouldn't go into business with that person. Well, you say, why not? He's a nice guy, and, and so on and so forth, and... And, um, well, he's a nice guy, except when it comes to money and you're not born again, um, he might think he's got a different way of doing his taxes than you, as a born-again believer, have an idea of paying your taxes. So that's one example. Probably um, uh, the biggest example is when it comes to marriage. And a believer should not marry an unbeliever. I'm going to spend a little time with this one and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul, Paul, again, having to write to the Corinthians, remember, and, and keep in context here, um, the immorality that existed in the city of Corinth. I mean, a thousand temple prostitutes coming down every weekend. And um, so Paul has to address the issue of marriage. And what happens if um, you're married and um, when you got married, neither, neither one of the mates were saved, and then one of them gets saved? Well, now what do you do? Well, Paul actually addresses that here. But the first thing he says, and let's look at the first two verses, principles for a married life. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, 
it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, These would be singles. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And thus, um, the marriage relationship is sanctified. But he is referring here to um, being married to another believer. And let me just say it straight out, and, and our society is sunk to such a, a depth of depravity uh, in, our, in our country. It's not even an issue of uh, if you're marrying um, male and female. These days we gotta determine and say, well, what, what are you? Are you male or female? And the female will say, well, I'm male, and the male will say, well, I'm a female, and that's accepted in our society and taught in our schools today. And we just scratch our head and think, have we really gotten that far down? Has it really gotten to that degree? And how much different is Corinth than uh, the United States of America in the days in which we live? Not much. Especially when, oh, don't get me sidetracked off on the Olympics because that one really ticks me off. When I see these uh, males taking all the golds and uh, all I have to say is, well, I'm, I'm a girl. And um, that qualifies them to compete in, in, uh, in the game and they're winning all the golds because men are physically stronger than women and, um, and pretty much across the board. All right, um, we, I want to go down to verses uh, 10 through 16 that deals with what do you do when one person gets saved? And uh, Paul addresses that in verse 10. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and a husband is not to divorce his wife. The exception uh, would be, according to the scriptures, uh, sexual immorality, and those are grounds um, for, for, for divorce. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, says, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, so now we have a believer who has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. And it goes on to explain, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. That doesn't mean that the other one is saved, but for the sake of the children, it goes on to say that... Um, um, Verse 15, but if the unbeliever does depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in that case. In other words, you come home, you spend a weekend with uh, some of your Christian buddies and you got saved. And now you, you got come home and say, uh, honey, something really wonderful happened this weekend. I gave my life to Jesus Christ and that thing I've always been looking for. You've known me for how many years? And you know I've always had this empty spot inside of me. Well, I'm not empty anymore. I met the one who created me like we were watching with God of wonders. And that empty spot is filled. 
And I'm a happy man. I'm satisfied. That void that the Bible talks that every person has. Every person is born with this void inside of them. And there's that emptiness that's there, whether they'll admit it or not. And um, um, some people say, well, what about those people who have never heard the gospel? Well, uh, Romans chapter one says that you have a conscience, whether you're saved or not saved. Everybody has a conscience. You know what's right, you know what's wrong. And you also have the evidence of creation, and that's why I like God of Wonders. God will hold a person accountable that he is just because of creation. It says in Romans 1, they suppress the truth. It's not that they don't know the truth, they know the truth, but they suppress it in unrighteousness. Why? Well, if you're taking notes, that would be in the Gospel of John. It says men love darkness rather than the light. And they don't want to come to the light because they love the darkness. There is pleasure in sin. And uh, until a person makes that decision that I'm going to give the Lord Jesus Christ a chance. And uh, now, now you come home and you say, uh, honey, I'm, I'm a different person. And she says, if you think I'm going to get involved with those holy rollers, you got another thing coming. And it's not going to happen. And there have been people, you know people, I know people, that have had to make that decision um, to, to give up walking with the Lord for, for the sake of keeping their marriage. No. The Bible says that you love God first, and the Lord says, I haven't come to bring peace. I've come to bring division. That in one owns household, there will be those who will be for me, and there will be those who will be against me. Um, a father against his daughter, or a daughter against his father. And uh, don't think that I've come to bring peace. The Lord has to be number one. And uh, yet, there are couples that are put in that situation. You got a decision to make. Either we go, you go back to your old ways or I'm out of here. And you have to be able to say, sorry, I have to put the Lord first. I'll pray for you. That's what it means here. If the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such a case, but God has called us to peace. And it goes on to say, for how do you know O wife, whether you will save your husband. You don't. Um, I'm thinking about Stan, and I'll, I'll tell this story uh, during the funeral this, this week, but you know, here's, here's Linda praying for Stan for 19 years. And uh, you, most of you know the story, but I love telling it so much, I'm gonna tell it again anyway. <laughs> so he wasn't interested in going to Israel, but Linda always wanted to go to Israel. And Stan didn't want anything to do with it. But he always wanted to see the pyramids. Never saw the pyramids. Life dream, see the, see the pyramids. Oh, by the way, Linda said to Stan, we're taking a side trip this year. We're going to Egypt. We're gonna see the pyramids. You're gonna go see the pyramids? Well, I'm going with you. I wanna see the pyramids too. And so Stan got to see the pyramids and that's where we went for the first three days. The Cairo Museum is, to me, the most profound museum in the world. I haven't seen all 
Um, but that one, I was extremely impressed with, with um, their museum there. The problem for Stan was, for the next two weeks, morning, noon, and night, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we traveled all of Israel, and we went to all these different spots, and we had a routine, and the routine went something like this. The guide would um, get us to the spot, give a little overview, but then we would have somebody lead worship, a couple would give up, and they would tell their own personal story, how they came to, to know Jesus. And then we'd have a Bible study about that particular place. Short example, Caesarea Philippi. Who do men say that I am? And um, when we go to Israel, we actually go to what I call an A spot. We know where the, um, the headwaters or where the Jordan River actually begins. And it begins at Caesarea Philippi. And um, you can see where it flows. And, and um, we'll have message and testimony and a Bible study. And I said, this happened right here where Jesus say, who do men say that I am? And um, so that, long story short, Stan got saved. And um, he's in heaven right now. And all because of the pyramids. <laughs> oh, we were watching some video of, of Israel. And um, the last time we were there in 2019, I'm really getting sidetracked, you know. Uh, boy, do I miss going back. It's like, it's like a second home. And uh, I've been leading trips there since 1979. And it really is like um, having a second home. All right, back to our study this morning. So in 2 Corinthians, probably one of the major ones, don't be unnucleoric together with unbelievers. Primarily, I think it is, marriage is, is uh, probably the most important one here because uh, you really can't have fellowship in a spiritual sense. Um, I'd like to take you to the book of Genesis chapter 24. So if you turn back there with me. Genesis 24, I'm going to talk about Jacob and Esau. And um, in chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, we have Abraham setting a precedent uh, for his son, Isaac. And uh, let's read it in Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to his oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, he said, please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of, my, of the earth, that you will not take a wife from the son's of the daughters of the Canaanites. So the children of Israel were only to intermarry amongst their own people because of the, um, the wickedness and the idolatry of, of the, the people that lived in the land of Canaan, then called Canaanites. And so Abraham is setting a precedent. He says, I want you, I want you to swear. 
that um, uh, that you do not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. So here they are living in the world, but now he's saying you can't be a part of being unequally yoked with um, somebody that doesn't hold to the same God that we believe in. But you shall go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. All right, so let's go ahead from there. Um, Verse 67, just without going through all this, the, the servant sort of puts this fleece out before the Lord he prays and he said, how, how do I know, Lord, which one you want? And so he, we call this putting a fleece before the Lord. He says, Lord, I'll tell you what, when I come to this place and I go to Mesopotamia and um, he's, he said that he'd, he, want, he wanted whoever would come out to... Um, offer him some water. And then to even offer them to give water to the camels. And he said, let that, let that be the one. So we read in verse 16, um, here comes Rebecca, let's go back to verse 14. Now let the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And, and she says, drink, and I will also give your camels to drink. Let it be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And it happened before he had even finished speaking that behold, Rebekah, who was of uh, the son of Baal, um, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with a pitcher on her shoulder and it says that she was very beautiful to behold. Well, she had a free will. And um, long story short, with Isaac, if you go to the last verse here, verse um, 58, um, he goes and he tells the whole story to the family. And the family basically says, it's gotta be her choice. If she wants to marry you or not marry you. And in verse 58, they called Rebecca and she said to him, Will you go with this man? And she says, yeah, I will go. And in verse 67, then Isaac brought her into his mother's tent and he took Rebekah and she became his wife and that set the precedent and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now that's Isaac, but we're, I'm more concerned with Jacob and Esau, but this sets the precedent. So let's, Turn to chapter um, 29, a couple pages over, and I'm looking at, you'd have to do your own homework with the story of, of him coming to uh, Uncle Laban's house, and um, Laban was quite a character. He, he tricked um, Jacob into working for him for seven years because he fell in love with um, Rachel. Rachel was also very, very beautiful. And he said, yeah, I'll, I'll work seven years for Rachel. But when it came to 
the night of the wedding, Uncle Laban did a little switcheroo and he put Rachel's sister Leah there instead. So when he woke up in the morning, it wasn't Rachel, it was Leah. And he gets hot under the collar and he goes, what in the world did you do to me? I didn't make a deal for Leah, I made the deal for Rachel. And he says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll let you marry her too, if you'll work for me for another seven years. And um, so Laban was quite a character, but um, she really wasn't able to bear him children. So go to Genesis 36 now, and we're looking at Esau. So we find here that Jacob, following Abraham's accord, you cannot marry or be unequally yoked with a Canaanite. And uh, Jacob did not. He married within the Jewish heritage, but not Esau. I'm hanging there, I'm going somewhere with this if you're wondering. Um, Verses one through six, now this is Esau. Remember they were twins. Now this is a genealogy of Esau, who is Edom, Esau took for his wives from the daughters of Cana, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and Aholalema, something, <laughs> the daughter of Anna, and also we're told um, that there was uh, a marriage here to the Hivite. So we have a Canaanite and a Hivite, and these are ones that Esau married. So now I need to turn to one verse in the book of Romans where the Lord comments about this very thing. Romans chapter 9 and we're looking at verse 13. Verse 13 says, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And the question is why? Well, Jacob did was not unequally yoked in marriage the way that Esau was. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. There was no fellowship there. And it's sort of an Old Testament picture of um, Paul commenting on this very thing because of what we just read. Esau also despised his birthright. He was the firstborn. And um, he, he, he despised it. And one day he was out hunting and he was coming home and he was really hungry. And um, th- there's uh, Jacob and he's making a stew and lentil, lentil stew. And... Um, he said, uh, hey, little brother, how about giving me some of that lentil stew? I'm starving. And he says, it's going to cost you. Well, what do you want? Well, I want your birthright because that's the honor to be the firstborn. Special privileges went to the firstborn. And he basically says, what do I care about my birthright? Well, that was a place of honor that the Lord had given the firstborn child. And so he swapped his birthright for a bowl of soup. And so basically what 
is saying here is he actually despised the things of the Lord, including the, the marriage vows to Canaanite women, making them unequally yoked. All right, remember I told you we're gonna go back to 1 Corinthians um, chapter five. I just wanna read a couple more verses. And then I wanna give you some examples from, from the Lord. So 1 Corinthians 5 again, we read, now in verses 9 through, uh, I want to reread what we just went through again. I wrote to you not to keep company with immoral people, yet certainly I did not mean sexually immoral people of this world. Well, that's what Esau did. Or with the covetousness or idolaters, then you would need to go out of the world. We would say that Esau was worldly. He despised the things of the Lord. Even though he was born into a Jewish heritage, it would be the same like saying, well, I believe in Jesus, but then you live in a completely worldly lifestyle. We're told that we're not to judge people, but we can judge their fruit. And if, if they're, um, you know, hitting the bars on, I grew up in Oshkosh, so we, we, um, we just had this, hit, hit, hitting the bars, had a term for it, and um, that's what I did growing up. Oshkosh had a reputation, so to speak, when it came to bar hopping. Um, Johnny Carson once said, well, I'm really getting off track. <laughs> uh, there's two places to be on St. Patrick's Day, and one of them is Dublin, England, uh, Dublin, Ireland, and the other place is Oshkosh, Wisconsin, <laughs> because it had that reputation of being just a party town. Well, you could party all night long in Oshkosh, uh, and I did, and then got up and went to church with mom and dad at uh, the Lutheran church at the end of Cherry Street, Bethlehem Lutheran. I was an usher for Pete's sake, I even knew when to ring the bell at the right time. We'd say the Lord's Prayer. So you go, our Father, my job was to push a button, ding, and right in the middle of the prayer somewhere, it would go, ding again, and then when I said amen, ding again. And then I would usher everybody out. There were times that I snuck out at the beginning went down to the mag, got in a game of pool, and got back in time to usher people out of church. And mom and dad were not there that weekend, they were traveling, so all I did was pick up a bulletin. Go to church? Sure did, lying through my teeth. (laughs) Here's a bulletin to to prove it. Boy, I I can find my way back wherever I was. (laughs) Let's, Let's look at Examples that Jesus gave of being in the world but not of it. Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, one of my favorite stories. One through 10. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. And he was rich. Now, the Jewish people hated the tax collectors because the tax collectors made their money 
by skimming and adding more to the tax bill, and that's why they were hated. Now, he was a chief tax collector, so he was really hated by the people. And he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus who was, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So we know that Zacchaeus is a short guy. He couldn't see over people's head. So he climbs up this tree. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass by that way. And when Jesus came to this place, he looked up and he saw him and he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And those who are hearing it are thinking, say what? So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Notice the reaction of the people in verse seven. But when they saw it, they all murmured, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord. What did he call him? He called him Lord. What does that mean? Something happened over supper. And he got converted and he got saved. How do I know? He said, then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, look, I'll give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, in other words, skimming from the top, I'm gonna restore them fourfold. Anybody that I cheated on, on my taxes, I'm gonna give it four times back more. And then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. What's your point, Dwight? Well, where's the balance? Where's the balance with hanging out with people that are unsaved? And what are people gonna say if you go to... um, um, somebody's house is not a believer, notorious for being a sinner. Um, well, the example that the Lord gave here, they were murmuring about it. And uh, he's hanging out with sinners. Yeah, but he's hanging out with sinners for a reason. He's hanging out with him because he knows that this wee guy, Zacchaeus, is gonna get saved. And so here's an example that the Lord uses of being in the world, but not being of it, but being a light to it. I can't help but not tell this story for some of you new people, some of you who've been here for a while have heard it. It goes back to um, um, a story with Charles Spurgeon. You know, in those old English um, churches uh, at the pulpit, you have to go up these winding stairs and way up here and people are way down there. Well, he had a Bible school. And one of the requirements that Charles Spurgeon had is that he could point, hey Trent, I want you to come up here and I want you to give me a three-point Bible study. And I want you to make three applications. And every student had to be on guard because nobody knew exactly when Charles was gonna point his finger at somebody and say, come on up here. And so he points his finger down to this guy. He goes, come here. I want a three-point Bible study. I want an application, and um, then you can leave. So this guy that comes up, um, 
like Zacchaeus, he was, he was really short. And Spurgeon, if you know anything about Spurgeon, Spurgeon was a big man. So I'm sure he was already intimidated as he's going up the stairs and here's Charles Spurgeon saying, okay, I want a three-point study. And the guy's sh- shaken and he's nervous. And he said, um, um, point one, um, uh, Zacchaeus was a wee short man. Application, I am a wee short man. Point two, Zacchaeus was up in a tree. I am up in a tree. (laughs) Point three, the Lord said, Zacchaeus, come down, and I'm coming down. (laughs) I love telling that story. You see what the Lord did here? People were legalistic, and people can be legalistic um, by associating with people of questionable character. Let me give you another one from Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, it's about John the Baptist. John the Baptist had one job. Malachi 3 verse one says that he was the voice shouting in in the wilderness. And when they asked him who he was, they thought he might be the Messiah. Are you the Messiah? No. Jeremiah, no. Well, who are you then? I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. He had one job. And he said he knew ahead of time that when the Messiah would come, that a dove would come down and land upon him. So he sees Jesus as he's baptizing down by the Jordan River. Here comes Jesus. And he sees the dove come down. And he points his finger and he goes, this is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. That was his one and only job. Jesus called him the greatest man who ever lived. Think about that for a while. The Lord said that John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived. Well, I want that for a background, so let's read verses two two through six. John had been put in prison and when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and he said to him, are you the coming one or should we be looking for someone else? And I have to say, I stop and I say, say what? You're John the Baptist. Of all people on planet earth, you know more than anybody else that he is. So then what's going on here? Um, he answered and said to them, go tell John the things that you've seen and hear. So now the disciples find Jesus and he sends a message back to um, John the Baptist. He said, tell John that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them and they knew all of that. But what I'm gonna read next This was something that nobody knew except John the Baptist himself. And he said, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Question, why would John the Baptist be offended? If you turn page to verses 18 and 19, 
When John came, how did he dress? With just camel hair. Uh, What did he eat? Locusts and honey. He was also under the vow of a Nazarite. Now, one of the conditions of taking the vow of a Nazarite is you could not only not drink wine, but you couldn't even eat grapes. And um, here, the word had gotten out that Jesus was going around, and let's read it in verse 18. John came neither eating nor drinking and saying he has a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, he's a gluttonous man. He's a wine-bibber. Uh, John got word that Jesus is eating with people and actually drinking wine. Yep, that's what exactly what it says. The Bible does not, um, um, well, what was Jesus' first miracle? Let's put it that way. He turned water into wine. And some people say, yeah, well, that was new wine, and new wine isn't fermented. Remember the book of Acts chapter two? And um, all the people, when the Holy Spirit fell, they all spoke with different tongues. And uh, the people started saying, they're full of new wine. Well, they were drunk. The implication was, these guys are all drunk. But it says new wine. And uh, Peter says, no, it's not. It's nine o'clock in the morning. And, um, but John was offended because of his legalism. He couldn't do it. He didn't have the liberty to do it. But now he's telling um, the disciples here, he's a gluttonous man, overeater, a wine bibbler, a, fa- a friend of tax collectors, well, we just read about that one, and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. Look what he did with the woman at the well. She's a prostitute. And um, the Pharisees said they caught her right in the very act. And they drug her out. My question is, how did the scribes and the Pharisees know where she lived? <laughs> and um, they throw her down at Jesus' feet. And they said... Um, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. The Bible says stoner, but what do you say? Words going around that you're friends with some of these harlots and so on and so forth. You're actually hanging out with them. And the Lord said, okay, he who is without sin, go ahead, cast the first stone. And then he stooped down and began writing on the ground. And uh, we're not sure exactly what he wrote, but we do know the results of what he wrote. It says from the oldest to the youngest. All of a sudden, somebody remembered, I got, I, I got to go, I got to go do a little shopping for my wife. I gotta, see you later. Well, he probably wrote adulterer in that guy's name and looked up at him. He's gone. And however many of them were there, all of a sudden, nobody's there. And he looks down at the woman, and she's listening to all this. And the Lord says, where are your accusers? And she says, none here, Lord. Oh, something had happened. Now we have a prostitute caught in the act of adultery who's all of a sudden saved. Did he condone her sin? No. He said, he said uh, and neither do I condemn you. Go and get six months of counseling and everything will be all right. Is that what he said? 
No, he said, go and sin no more. You can't live that lifestyle anymore. That was what you did in the world. Now you can't do that anymore because now you belong to me. And she loved the Lord and followed the Lord um, the rest of her days. Let me give you an Old Testament picture of this from the book of Joshua, chapter seven. I just want to give you a little bit of background here. When the children of Israel were delivered from bondage in Egypt, it's a picture. It's a picture of coming out of the world. Egypt is a symbol of the world. And God called them out. And they had to begin a walk of faith. They had to trust God for 40 years. Uh, to go into the promised land. So they, they came out. What was the first thing that happened? They went through the Red Sea. Um, that's, what's the first thing that happens when you get saved? Well, you go under the water. And it's a picture of baptism. And then what do you do? Well, you sing songs. So that's where the song of Moses came in. Then what do you do? Well, you start your walk by faith. And uh, we mumble and we complain at times. Why is this happening? Why is that happening? And they had to put up with this. Moses had to put up with it for 40 years until they get ready to enter into the thing that God had promised them, the promised land. And so what we have here is in chapter six, them crossing over the Jordan. By the way, the Bible tells us there's two places that the water was parted. One at the Red Sea, And once when they went over from one side of Jericho over the Jordan River, it opened up for them and they walked through on dry land. And the first thing they run into is this worldly city called Jericho. So the Lord gave them instructions on how they're going to win this battle. I want you to walk around it for seven days, seven times. And um, on the seventh day, um, they blew the trumpet the walls came tumbling down and um, um, they defeated, took and destroyed everything in the city except Rahab. Um, verse 25, and Joshua spared Rahab the harlot her father's, and her father's household and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messenger whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua charged them at that time, cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds the city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation uh, with his firstborn, that literally happened, and with the youngest he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout all the country. What a tremendous victory that it happened. So now they're in the land and they're going to conquer it and some of the guys go up ahead to this little town called Ai. And in verse one of chapter seven, it says, but the children of Israel committed a trespass against the accursed thing of Achan. Back in the book of Joshua, we learn how Joshua And the Israelites took the fortified city of Jericho by faith. However, Achan took the accursed thing. Israel had touched what God had declared to be unclean. 
Then they went up to the little city of Ai with great confidence because they were sure of an easy victory. But Joshua and Israel were overcome and defeated at Ai. God asked for separation from worldliness and from the unclean thing. Well, what are you talking about, Dwight? Well, they went to Ai, a small city, so they um, took some men, and it should have been an easy victory, but we read in verse one, but the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed thing uh, for Achan, the son of Carmi, uh, the son of Zabbi, and um, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Let's get into um, the picture of this actually happening. So we need to look at verses 9 through 26 is, pick it up in verse 9. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up, why do I lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they also have put it among their own stuff. And therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies because they have become doomed to destruction neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed thing from the people. So now it's a matter of elimination. He gets all the tribes together and one by one they're eliminated by the Lord and it finally comes down to one family in verse 18, then they brought in the household of um, a man, Achan, the son of Carmi, and Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and make confession to him, and tell me now, what have you done? We know you've done something. The Lord has whittled it down to one family, and in that one family, you're the one that the Lord points to. And tell me what you have done, and do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I've done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth, in the midst of the tent and with the silver under it. And so Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was, hidden in the tent with the silver in it. And then they took Achan uh, and they stoned him and everything that he had, his donkeys and everything that was in his possession. Verse 26, they raised over him a great heap of stones uh, to this day so the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, the name of the place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Uh, let's go back and finish up the last two verses in Second Corinthians 6. Come out from among them and be separate. Do not be unequally yoked 
don't get involved with the unclean things. And he said, if you will do these, and verse 17, and you do come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. The reason I went back and told the story about Joshua and Achan is that's exactly what he did. He took the unclean thing and it cost him his life. And I will receive you, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. Um, This scripture here, come out from among them and be separate, um, is the verse for the Amish community. Um, We have quite a few Amish living in the northern part of Wisconsin, up in the Nielsville area, Owen, Stanley. Um, My mom and dad had a trailer up there, the guy who owned the corner uh, hardware store, they were all Amish. And um, they take this verse out of context. And the purpose of the Bible study this morning is where is the balance of being in the world but not of the world? Well, they've taken this scripture and it says come out from among them and be separate. They don't have anything to do with any other people except Amish people. Um, They won't uh, have telephones. Um, They won't have a car. Some Amish have cars. You know what they do? They paint the, the, the bumpers black. They're, they're called black bumpers because it's taking away the uh, shininess. <laughs> they're justifying driving a car. We'll paint, we'll paint the front black and it'll, it'll look plain. And um, they don't have phones, but I know that they go down and use the neighbor's phone when they want to call somebody. But they take this one verse and they take it out of context and there is no balance for them. They're completely amongst themselves. Um, they have no inner, real interaction um, with what they would call worldly people because of this particular verse. Now, I'll close with this thought. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God is always your father. Don't forget that. What God is saying here is that he would like to act like a father to you. He would like to treat you as a son or daughter. If you are going off into worldliness and if you don't mean what you say, if you are hypocritical in your life, then you can be sure of one thing. God the Father will take you to the woodshed. My friend, God does not want to be ever lastingly talking to you and taking you to the woodshed. That is why he asks you to come out from among them to be separate and not to touch the unclean thing. Then God came, uh, then God can have an intimate relationship with you as a father with a son. The thing that we have here is not only interaction with one another, but more importantly, um, uh, Heavenly Father who loves us as we were watching in God of Wonders. And with all the crazy stuff that's going on in the world today, isn't it good to know you have a Father that loves you and that we know what the end plan is? We're gonna re- rule and reign with him for a thousand years. So yes, there's a lot of people suffering right now and we need to pray for them. 
But what we have that they don't have is faith, hope, and love. I shared this with the guys. It was either yesterday morning or the week before, and I will close with this. And some of you are saying, Dwight, you already said that once already. We have what? When all is said and done, and he's writing this to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Whenever, when all is said and done, what do we have? We have faith, we have hope, and we have love. What's faith about? Well, I have faith that Jesus Christ died for my sins. Therefore, I don't take thought about what happened yesterday. It doesn't bother me. If, if the devil comes and taps me on the shoulder, you remember what you did 10 years ago? You should be feeling awful guilty about that. And I can get right in his face and say, no, that's all been taken care of. Slate wiped clean. I confess that sin. And my Bible says, if I confess my sin, then he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I don't think I've asked her an amen at this morning, but that's a good place for one. All right, so the cross takes care of my past. I don't have to worry about my past. Okay, I have hope. Well, what do I have hope in? That this isn't my home. We're just passing through. That's the song that we sing. This is very, very temporal here. And because I have hope, what do I have hope in? Well, the Lord's gonna come and take us out of here. When? I don't know. But he can't lie, and he said he's going to. So I have hope of heaven, and I have hope of being with him as the bride of Christ. So what does that leave me with? Well, my past is taken care of. I have a glorious hope for the future. You know what that does? It frees me up for the moment. Doesn't it say in Matthew, sufficient unto the day is the evil therein, and that you have enough to worry about today without worrying about what happened in the last year or what's going to happen? Both of those are all taken care of. What does it do? It frees me up to love. And um, that's all you have to worry about for today. Take no thought for tomorrow. Sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. In other words, you got enough to worry about today without worrying about the past or worrying about the future. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, as we make our way through the book of um, 2 Corinthians, trying to strike a balance here, Lord, with where we should be as far as being involved with this world that we live in. We thank you for the examples that you set with Zacchaeus and the, as a tax collector and John the Baptist um, being legalistic. And um, Lord, we pray that you'd show us areas in our life that you want to um, just cleanse up and not touch the unclean thing, whatever it is in individuals' hearts and lives. But we do thank you for the faith and the hope and the love, and that um, you will never change. And we thank you so much for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.